Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. If you would, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis chapter 35. We're going to walk through the first 15 verses tonight. Before we do so, I want to say thank you, Noah, for leading us in that time of prayer. I appreciate that. Uh, Very timely for us to take time to do that. Genesis chapter 35. More than 20 years he had been gone. More than 20 years. 10 years of war. And it took him about 10 years, about the same amount of time, to get back home. And he faced many perils along the way. And all of his crew were killed. In his absence, he was assumed dead, as you can imagine, 20 years gone. His wife and son had to contend with a group of suitors who were coming for her hand. Now, most of you have probably read or at least heard the story of the Greek hero Odysseus, king of Ithaca. Probably read it in high school or um, maybe college. The Odyssey is one of two poems that is ascribed to uh, Homer. And it's one of the oldest works in human history uh, that is still read by a modern audience. Well, before Odysseus, there was a story of another man who was gone from his homeland for about 20 years as well. And the circumstances are a little bit different, but let's see what happens in the story in Genesis chapter 35. Let's read beginning in verse 1. We'll go through verse 7 for, for now. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and live there, and make an altar there to God, to myself, who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments, and let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God. Who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever, wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them. And they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him, he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. So beginning this chapter, God reaches out to Jacob and he says, come back, return to Bethel. Now, if you're just picking up the story here, this doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. We need some background to understand what's going on. So the significance of this uh, comes from the rest of Jacob's story. Let's, let's back up a, quite a bit here, because in our last sermon, we were looking at Abraham, right? And now we're talking about this other guy, Jacob. Where, what happened in between? And if you're uh, familiar with Scripture, you, you may know this story already, so bear with me. But uh, in case anyone's not, who is Jacob? Well, I, son of Isaac, yes. So remember, last time, Abram, Abraham had taken Isaac his son, to go sacrifice him 
on the altar to the Lord, and the Lord stopped him. And Dr. Spivey spoke about how Abraham's unreasonable faith was uh, displayed, and it was tested, and it was shown. Uh, he also spoke a little bit about Isaac and how he willingly laid down and was bound, and we don't really see any, anything in Scripture where he said anything. He just went along with it. Uh, and so he had to have some faith of his own that God would do uh, something amazing. Well, Isaac grew up. He got married. Uh, his, married his cousin, Rebecca, who was Abraham's niece. Um, and she was barren. She was not able to have children. So Isaac prayed to the Lord. He demonstrated his faith once again, prayed to the Lord that she would have a child. And the Lord opened up her womb, and she had two children. She had twins uh, who, Scripture says, they struggled against one another in the womb. They were against one another. And God prophesied to Rebekah, saying in Genesis 25, verse 23, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people will be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And we read about Paul's uh, understanding of that passage uh, from Romans 9 as we started this, uh, this service this evening. But while we see the idea of the younger being, uh, being blessed over the older one throughout Scripture, and we see the weaker being exalted over the stronger. That was against the norm for the culture at the time. The oldest child would receive an inheritance that was generally double the portion of everybody else's. So that was his birthright, but he would also receive a blessing from his father. But an interesting note is made at his birth. See, Jacob, when he was born, he was born grasping the heel of his brother Esau. And in fact, that's what his name means. Jacob means hill grabber and also has this idea of deceit behind it, deceiver. So fast forward in the story a little bit. The two boys are now uh, grown somewhat. Uh, Esau was this burly, manly man, right? He was covered in hair and he was strong and he was the hunter. So he was out doing things all the time. And we see Jacob is at home cooking, you know, and, and a lot of times that's kind of associated with the, the woman's role in that um, that culture. So Esau's out working in the field. Jacob is at home and he is cooking. And Esau comes in and he says, I'm famished. I'm wasting away. I need some food. Will you give me some food? And Jacob sees an opportunity for himself here. And he says, sure, I'll give you some food if you'll give me your birthright. And Esau despises his birthright, is what Scripture calls it. He says, fine, I'll sell you my birthright for a meal. And uh, so Jacob now is receiving the double inheritance instead of Esau. He's receiving that double inheritance from Isaac. Now, Scripture doesn't record how old they were when this happened. But if you uh, look into the Talmud, uh, this is said to take place right after Abraham died. And they were about probably 15 when this happened. So that's not scripture, so don't take it as scripture, but that kind of gives you an idea of where they were. Okay, so now we fast forward again a few years. Jacob and Esau are now 40. And scripture said that Isaac was 60 when they were born. And so now Isaac is 100, his kids are 40. And his eyesight has gone. And he begins to anticipate, I don't know how much longer I have left. I'm 100 years old. I, now, he'll go on to live for quite a bit longer, but he didn't know that at the time. 
Uh, but he, his eyesight was gone. He anticipates his death. So he wants to go ahead and give the blessing to his oldest son. So he instructs Esau to go out to hunt, to then make this special meal for him and to bring it to him and he'll bless him. But his wife, Rebecca, remember Abraham's niece, was listening to this. And now if you're hearing you're a parent, don't do this. This is not right. But they had favorites. They had favorites. Isaac favored his manly man son, and Rebecca favored the one that stayed at home with her. That makes sense. Um, so Rebecca comes up with this plan. She says, All right, we're going to deceive my husband, your father. Um, we're going to give him the meal that he's wanting. And as Jacob has already demonstrated in his adolescence, He's willing to do whatever it takes for him to get ahead. So he goes along with her plan. So he puts on his brother's clothes. His mother takes goat hair and wraps around his arms and the nape of his neck. So he's hairy like his brother. And sends him in with the meal that she's prepared that she knew was what he wanted. And so he goes in and the plan works perfectly. Isaac is deceived. He fills his arms says, oh, you're hairy like my son. You're wearing his clothes, so you smell like my son. And so everything goes swimmingly. Um, but then he goes out. He's already been blessed. Uh, Jacob's already been blessed. Esau comes in, having done exactly what he was supposed to do. And his father says, well, who was that that I just gave the blessing to? Your brother has come in and deceived me. And so... The plot was discovered pretty quickly, honestly, um, and Esau became so angry because now not only has he given away his birthright, but the blessing that he was still supposed to receive has now also gone to his brother. And so it says that he got so angry that he wanted to kill his brother. Now, every time I've read this before, I've just thought about this, like that passion of the moment, right? Like, why would you do this? I'm just going to strangle you. But that's not what it actually says. Genesis 27 verse 41 says he was plotting. Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. So I'm going to wait till dad dies and then I'm going to kill my brother Jacob. So he's, this isn't just like passion of the moment. This is intentional plotting murder. Well, Rebecca found out about this. And once again, she had her preferred son, her favorite son, and um, so she said, hey, you've, you've got to get out of here. Your, your, your brother is going to kill you. And so she sends Jacob to go live with her brother, Laban, for his safety. But she presents it. She's, she's once again kind of deceitful in this. She presents it to Isaac as, um, he, I don't want him to marry someone from this land. Now, I was curious, why, why, does, why is this the case? If you go back, Esau had married two women from this land. And it said that that was a point of contention in their family. So she uses a point of contention in their family, say, we want him to get a proper wife. We don't want one like our other daughter-in-laws. Send him off to go get a right wife. So she, she sends him off. And man, talk about a dysfunctional family, right? Like, what's going on here? You've got mother and brother deceiving the father and the other brother. Uh, one brother plotting to kill another. Wife lying to her husband. And even this, in this attempt to save his life, send ja save Jacob's life, 
she kind of takes that moment to take, kind of take a pot shot at the other side. We don't want Jacob to end up like Esau with his wives. By the way, Esau's response to this was to marry another Canaanite woman. So, you know, great, great relationship. Anyway, so Jacob leaves, and he's on his way to his uncle Laban's house, and he stops for the night, and he gets a rock, gets a rock to sleep on, and I've just got a small one. I didn't find one big enough to use as a pillow, but he takes the rock, and he lays his head down on it, and then he goes to sleep, and while he's sleeping, he has a dream, and if you would turn with me uh, back a few pages to chapter 28 of Genesis, and we're going to look at verses beginning in verse 12. Genesis 28, we'll read 12 through 19. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants." Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob arose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. And he called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously, the name of the city had been Luz. So does any of this sound familiar from what we've already talked about? These promises that he made, they're echoing these promises that, was, that were made to Abraham uh, that we looked at in Genesis 12. They're echoing the promises that he made to Isaac. And then we'll see later that he also uh, has some other things in it that uh, are important. But uh, I found it interesting that the way the preaching schedule ended up, I had the two stairways that are found in Genesis. Um, I don't want to go into great depth because of time, but there is an article uh, by Matthew Michael who wrote an article that is great comparing these two uh, ideas. And he says that the Jacob's dream echoes the Tower of Babel in several ways. And perhaps the most obvious comes from Jacob's reaction that we see in verse 17 where he says, this is the gate of heaven. If you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about uh, the Tower of Babel, we talked about that the, the name Babel, the word Babel in Akkadian literally means gate of the God. And so the main point that I want us to see here is that at Babel, they were trying to do a whole bunch of things. And I mentioned then that God immediately turns around in chapter 12 and makes those same promises that he's going to do for Abraham and his descendants what the people at Babel were trying to do for themselves. That promise was extended to Isaac in Genesis chapter 26, if you want to go back and look at that. And then in this passage, he continues on down the lineage and makes the same promise to Abraham's grandson. He also promises Jacob that he will protect him 
wherever he goes. He will provide for him wherever he goes. And he will bring him back to this place, Bethel. And so Jacob's response in chapter 28 is to consecrate that place as holy, the, the house of God. And so notice those few verses that we didn't read. Verse 20, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God, if God will be with me, he said he would, right? So there, there's this, hmm, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey and I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So he says, if God proves to be faithful to his word, I will serve him and I will give back to him the tithe. It's not even established yet, but tithe, I will give him 10%. And so although he responded to Jacob, Jacob responded to God in worship, it's a conditional worship. And it proves that it requires that God prove himself to Jacob. But Jacob was familiar with God, right? He was raised up Abraham's grandson, the son of Isaac. These two faithful men that we've, well, we studied Abraham. We didn't really study Isaac, but we talked about. Um, he had heard about this faith. He'd heard about this God, and he'd, surely they've told him about all the things that God had done for them, but there comes a time in every person's life where God comes into your life, and you have to make a decision for yourself, and that's what we see here for Jacob. He, God comes into his life. He says, Jacob, I need you to trust me that I'm going to do these things, and Jacob says, well, if you do those things, then I'll worship you, and I look at that and think, like, God, why didn't you choose somebody else that would just take you at your word like Abraham seemed to do? Um, but God seems to be okay with that. But for two decades, we're going to see God's guiding Jacob through and trying to keep him on. But Jacob just kind of does his own thing. And you, you see, occasionally he'll talk about God, but he doesn't really seem to follow what God wants him to do. And so as we go back to 35, we see... Everything that God has been doing in his life, God's calling him here in 35 to come back to the place that he met him in chapter 28, where Jacob promised, if God is faithful and returns me to my father's house, I will come here and I will worship God. Well, having received the call, Jacob and his family uh, must prepare to obediently go and worship the Lord. As we saw 20 years ago, uh, Jacob promised to go back to Bethel, but there's been a lot that's happened over those 20 years. Some things that rep require repentance and require a confession of his guilt before God. So we already know a little bit of Jacob's background. Uh, as we said, he's a deceiver who goes out to do what he thinks is best for him, however, to get ahead He's hurt his family. Well, that didn't stop, first of all, when he met God. And second of all, sometimes what goes around comes around, and it takes that for you to, to learn your lesson. So as Jacob left from Bethel, he went on to his uncle Laban's place. On his way there, he meets Rachel. 
And he thinks, what a babe. She is smoking hot. She, scripture says she was beautiful of form and face. Well, he meets his uncle Laban, finds out that's his daughter. He promises to work seven years to have her hand in marriage. And scripture says those, because he had such a great love for her, those seven years seemed to fly by. But there was a problem that he wasn't aware of. In the custom of the land, it was uh, not proper for the younger daughter to be married off before the older daughter. And so Leah, who was Laban's older daughter, said she had tender eyes. She had soft eyes. She was compassionate. So he says, there's, Scripture says there's some good things about her. She's a great lady, but she's not smoking hot like Rachel is. So Jacob did not love her. And... The wedding night comes, and they, she comes in the evening, and all of that stuff that happens on the wedding night, and you know, culturally, there's some things going on there, but he wakes up in the morning, and the woman laying next to him is not Rachel. It's her sister. Uh-oh, more family drama, right? Well, the deceiver has been deceived, and he's now married to the wrong sister, but there's a proposition, work another seven years for me, wait a week uh, between this wedding, and you can marry Rachel next week. So he agrees, I'll go a week, marry Rachel next week, and then I'll work for Laban another seven years. So after 14 years of laboring for what's now his father-in-law and his uncle, uh, he has two wives, he's become a polygamist like his brother, and in those type of cases, um, jealousy arose. Because Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, she, Rachel was barren. God opened Leah's womb, and she gave birth. And this made Rachel jealous. And so she made some arrangements through her slave, have a child through my slave, and it'll be like it's my child. And... There's this, this kind of back and forth of each one trying to outdo one another. And before you know it, he has 12 kids. He has 11 sons and a daughter at this point. Well, continuing the story, there's some rather humorous trickery that takes place. And I invite you to join and go and read that later. Uh, we're not going to cover it right now. But eventually, Jacob leaves from leaves Laban to go back to Canaan. And when he does so, he swindled his uncle out of some of the greatest sheep. And Rachel has stolen her father's idols. Even though he came to look for them and knew that they were with Jacob's party, uh, he could not find them. But as we come back to 35, that's all in the past now. They've still carried these idols along with them. And knowing that Adonai is the only God, Jacob instructs his family, first we need to put aside all these false gods. In order to worship the Lord, we need to put away all these idols so we can truly focus and worship him. He alone is worthy of worship. And so Jacob seems to have learned something through all of his 20 years of things going on. Because initially he seemed to only worship himself and what he wanted and whatever it took for him to get ahead. 
Um, but now he knows that only God should be worshipped. And he takes those idols, he takes those earrings, uh, and the earrings supposedly have some connection with, uh, with the worship that they were doing with these idols. And so Jacob takes them, and he does something that is really easy to overlook, but it says that he buries them, he hid them under the oak, which was near Shechem. Turns out that's a, a sacred spot, not for God, but for the uh, cults that worship there. So by burying them under that oak tree, nobody else is going to go and disturb that area because it's sacrilege to those other cults. So he doesn't have to worry about them finding them because nobody's going to go bury or unbury those. Um, and the, the reality is they're leaving those things behind. They don't belong where they're going. He also instructed them to purify themselves and to change their clothes. This has the idea of, of cleansing. They, they need to bathe. They need to wash themselves both literally and figuratively from their sin. And I think this looks back to the preceding chapter uh, in specifically. Because Jacob and his family had come from Laban. They settled in Shechem. And there his daughter Dinah was raped by the quote-unquote prince of the land. And so when this prince later came to ask for Dinah's hand in marriage because he loved her, uh, and they also, he tried to negotiate a little bit, hey, if, if we do whatever they want, they'll let us intermarry with them. So that there's this potential issue of intermarriage that becomes a big thing for Israel later. So his sons by Leah... Uh, decide they're going to get back at these men. So they say, well, okay, yeah, that's fine. We will uh, we'll intermarry with you. You can marry Dinah, but she cannot marry someone who is not circumcised. So the prince goes back and says, hey, we all need to get circumcised so we can intermarry. And so all of the men, all of the men in the city of Shechem are circumcised. And three days later, when all their pain is upon them, they go in and kill them all. So they massacre this whole city because of their, their actions towards Dinah. So now they're covered in the blood of the innocent. They, not only that, but they, they looted everything in the city, including their wives and children. So they have added greatly to their number. So there, there's this blood on their hands. And so Jacob says, we need to not only leave behind that idol worship that's been going on, we need to purify our hands we need to wash, we need to cleanse ourselves from all unrighteousness so that we can come up to the Lord who is holy. And so he says they need to be cleansed, they need to be clothed in something new, they need a clean heart before the Lord. And friends, that is what we all need. Every single one of us, we need to be cleansed before the Lord. We, we've all done things, we've, we've put other things above God, we've all... Uh, maybe looked at somebody, Jesus said, if you look at somebody with hatred in your heart, you've already committed murder. All of these things, we need that. We need to be cleansed. And it is only by the blood of Jesus that we can be cleansed. And it's only when we're dressed in his righteousness that we can stand cleaned and renewed before God our Father. Well, as we continue in, in verse uh, 5, it says, they, they journeyed further to the east. And as they journeyed, there was a great terror 
upon them. Now, having prepared himself and his family to go to worship, Jacob and his family, as they're traveling to Bethel, or as it was known before, the city of Luz, of course, Jacob was concerned, having just seen his, his family kill an entire city, massacre an entire city, the people of this land, they're going to come and kill us. They're going to hear about what happened, and they're going to want us dead. And so he's concerned, but as they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities. The Lord went before him and prepared his way, and they were under his protection. They were under the protection of the Lord God Almighty, and nothing happened to them. Remember, God sent Jacob on this journey. And he would make sure that he reached his destination. And when you're in the Lord's will, it's a lot easier to do things that seem risky at the time. It's a lot easier to get on that plane and to fly overseas knowing God has led you there. It's a lot easier to go down to downtown Dallas and, and preach to people in the streets when you know God has led you to do that. Well, sometimes our vision is much clearer when we look back then we see it when we're going through it. And I think that's what happened here is he, he stopped when they got there and went, wow, I was expecting these people to come and kill us, but the Lord was with us and he led us through. So yes, it was a time where we were afraid, but he was faithful. Once again, God was faithful. He saw his faithfulness in it. Well, finally, Jacob is where he's supposed to be. He's at Bethel and He's finally doing what he's supposed to be doing. So he's, he's in Canaan. He's at Bethel where God appeared to him 20 years ago. And uh, most scholars agree that that was likely the same place that God had spoken to Abram or Abram in uh, chapter 12 and verse 6 through 8 uh, about this land that you see I'm going to give to you and your descendants. So he's finally where the Lord intended for him to be. He's finally doing what God intended for him to be doing. And then we have what seems like a bit of a side note, and I didn't include it in our reading earlier, but verse 8. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the oak, and it was named Alan Bakuth. Why is this here? Why is this? This seems like an odd interlude. Um, it's, it's interesting why this is here, I think. It's one of three deaths that occur in this chapter. Deborah, who we know very little about. Then later, Rachel dies in childbirth, bearing Benjamin. And then Isaac dies in this chapter. So all three of them die in this, this same chapter where he finally gets back to God. He's finally doing what he's supposed to be doing. And suddenly all these people start dying around him. And uh, it seems to have some significance to it. Now, one thing I want to point out that we don't really see where his mother dies. We see that she's buried in the family tomb, but we never see anything about Rebecca being dying and then mourning her death. And I think that's significant. Um, I think what's going on here is Deborah, who was Rebecca's nurse, was likely sent with Jacob. And so she was like this grandmotherly figure. But the relationship, this great relationship he had with his mother, it stopped. 
She sent him away. If you, if you go back and look, she sent him away. said, be gone for a few days while your brother cools down and then come back. But we never see them talking again. There's no mourning her death. But Deborah, who we know very little about, this, this servant is greatly mourned. I think the consequence of Rebecca and Jacob's deceitful plan is that she becomes estranged from her beloved son, and he grows closer to her slave than what he grows to her. And I think it's also there as a time marker. Because we, we see that it's after her death that God comes and speaks to Jacob again. And so it's, I think it's there for remembrance. You're going to remember what happens around a significant death. You're going to be able to recall how the Lord worked in that situation. And I think that's what's going on here. He, he, this woman who is beloved, this grandmotherly figure, when she dies, it's at that time that God speaks to him. And so he, we see at the end of his life, he goes back to this promises that God made here in chapter 35. So let's read those pas- that, that rest of this passage. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram, and he blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus, he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I give which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. Having obeyed God and having returned to Bethel, God appears to Jacob yet again. And this time he brings together, he's made these great promises throughout, but he kind of brings a bunch of stuff together and reaffirms all that he's promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and now to Jacob as well. So having obeyed God, he's blessed in that. And God is faithful to bless. See, earlier in Jacob's life, God had already changed his name. This is actually the second time he says this. And so if we go back in time a little bit chronologically, Jacob was returning to the land. He was preparing to meet his brother Esau. Remember, Isaac still hasn't died, so this threat of death is not gone. He was waiting until Isaac died. Esau was waiting until Isaac died to kill him. So as Jacob's coming back from the land, or back to the land, he was afraid Esau would be there waiting to kill him. And in fact, when we see him come, Esau comes with 400 men, and there's this moment of tension of what is about to happen um, but as he's preparing to come into the land, he sends his servants with gifts, uh, this wave after wave of gifts and, and giving this all to, to Esau. And then he sends his family also ahead of him. And in chapter 32, if you want to turn back with me there, 32 and verse 24, it says this, Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him, until daybreak. 
When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God's face. I've seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now, I've never been much of a wrestler. I, I didn't grow up wrestling or anything like that. But my freshman year of high school, I went to football camp. And for some reason, the coaches thought it was this great idea to put the, all the freshmen in the same cabin with all of the seniors. Yeah, not a great idea. So the seniors played pranks on us all week. And if you want to hear some stories, you can talk to me after. But there was a lot of frustration that was coming from these pranks by my fellow freshmen. Now, I'm kind of laid back. So I was like, yeah, they didn't really bother me either. I had kind of a weirdo. <laughs> when everybody else was taking biology one, I took chemistry one. So I was the one with the seniors and juniors in chemistry while everybody else that was my age was in biology. So I kind of had a relationship with them. So I was kind of already chill with them, but they didn't bother me. But my friend who had wrestled all of his life decided, let's challenge these guys to a wrestling match. And if we win, they have to leave us alone the rest of the week. So, of course, the seniors, you know, they're 17, 18 years old. They're, they're already men and we're freshmen. We're just developing and so they're like oh yeah we'll we'll take you on we'll win this thing and we'll still pick on you so it gives us an excuse to beat up on you and we get to still pull pranks on you it's great um now i was about five foot eight at the time and i don't think i weighed this much but maybe 115 pounds maybe i was a little guy i had no experience with wrestling and i come up against this senior who is at least double my size both ways, or at least it seems like it. So my plan was, I'm just going to survive. If I can just survive, I'm doing great. <laughs> I know I can't take him down. So when, he st when this match starts, I just run at him, and I grab a hold of him, and I wrap my arms and hold on as tight as I can, and I'm like, as long as I don't let go, I'm okay. So he's trying to throw me off. He can't throw me off. He rolls around on the ground. I'm still clinging to him. And then he starts trying to slam me against the door and stuff. And I'm just, I'm, if I let go, he's going to kill me. I just got to hold on. Well, so finally, we end. And somebody calls and they're like, you know what? We're done. We're tired. You wore us out. No more. Y'all win. So I got to be cheered on by both groups of being the hero for ending the, the, uh, the pranks. So I was pretty glad with that. But uh, that's what I'm picturing with Jacob here is it doesn't really tell us anything about this man, but this man came to him in the night and they wrestled all night. 
And the man, it says he touched his thigh and his thigh was dislocated. Yet still he was hanging on. And then we find out that this guy, this man, Jacob says, that was God. Now there's been debates. Is it an angel of God? Is it actually God as a theophany? We, we don't really know. But he says, I, I'm going to hold on to you until you bless me. So finally, he says, what is your name? He says, my name is Jacob. He says, not any longer. Your name is now Israel, for you have wrestled with God. So no longer is he deceiver. No longer is he heel grabber. He is the one who prevails with God. Now, remember back at Babel, the, the people, they wanted to make a name for themselves. And then God promised to Abraham, I will make you a name. I will make your name great. And now he changes Jacob's name to Israel. And we find later, Israel becomes this great name. So just like when God appeared to Abraham back in Genesis 17, he identifies himself by a certain name. That name he says, is El Shaddai, God Almighty. And then in chapter 35, this is how he says to him, he, he says, your name is no longer Jacob, you shall be called Israel. Israel is your name. So reaffirming what he previously said, and he says, my name is El Shaddai, God Almighty. And I am renewing this covenant that I made with your grandfather and with your father, and I'm bringing these things together that I've said to you. And so on, on the basis of this covenant renewal with, with Jacob or Israel, the, the promises are repeated. He says, I'll make you into a great nation. And here he tells Jacob, I'll make you into a great nation, and a company of nations will come from you. But there's also something that hasn't, it, it's been alluded to, it, it was kind of spoken to, to Abraham but he says, kings shall come forth from you. And of course, we know with the benefit of hindsight that Jacob's sons become the 12 tribes of Israel and they become this great nation and uh, they have kings that reign over them. And while he doesn't speak here specifically of the, of the uh, blessing toward the nations, what we do see is a blessing that comes from Israel to all nations. The king of kings comes from the nation of Israel. The king of kings comes from the tribe of Judah, one of Jacob's sons. King Jesus is the greatest blessing for all people, for all nations. And his salvation extends to all the earth. Now, God also promised land to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And as I said earlier, most scholars agree that it was either at Bethel or near Bethel that God promised Abraham, I will give you this land that you see. And so he's already, God has already been faithful to bring Jacob through all of that 20 years of stuff that he was dealing with his uncle Laban. He brought him through all of the stuff that he did as a kid, brings him back to the place where he's supposed to be. The place where he had promised, I will bring you to Abraham's promised land. But 
there's a greater promise. Matthew Henry, commentator, wrote that Jesus is the promised seed from Genesis 3, and that heaven is our promised land, that Jesus is the foundation, and heaven is the topping. The promise of Abraham is therefore extended not only to Isaac, but also to Jacob, and ultimately to us. And that promise was fulfilled in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. So how do we respond? Well, let's look at how Jacob responded in these last couple of verses here. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. He continued to worship the Lord, and he did so in a renewed fashion. He demonstrated this spiritual act by physically setting up a pillar of stone. And he took oil, he poured it, he took a drink offering, and he poured it over the stone, and he renamed. Names are a big deal here. He renamed Luce to Bethel. Here's what what I think we should take from this story. A believer doesn't have to have a new experience to be right with God. We don't have to have a new experience to, be, to, to worship God. What we need to do is continually look back to the covenant he made with us, the promise he made with us, the commitment, the, the submission that we gave to God when he saved us, and be reminded of that and to reaffirm that each and every day. And frequently, if you look at Scripture, God like to use physical objects or physical acts as a way for us to remember what he's done for us. I mean, we do that every month. And the last Sunday of the month, we take the Lord's Supper. That's a physical reminder of what Jesus did for us. If you look at all the things that are going on in the temple, they're physical acts that are for our benefit as we worship God. And if you were here this morning, the choir sang this song that I thought was, we should have sang it tonight, Ben. It goes right along with what we were talking about. Uh, It talked about uh, having this altar and a promise that you can claim and a stone that bears my name. Spoke about building a sacred altar to the Lord as tribute to his might. And in this passage, God, or sorry, in this passage, Jacob erected this pillar of stone as a reminder of God's promises to him. And Paul would later take this idea of stones, and well, Peter does too, about Jesus being the chief cornerstone that was rejected by the builders and upon which our salvation is based and upon which the prophets and the apostles build the church. And so tonight, uh, as we respond, I want us to do something a little bit different uh, than what we normally do. Uh, I've got a basket of stones, and if you would... If you're already a believer, come down and get you a stone as the music plays. And I want you to carry this with you this week, either in your pocket or in your purse or wherever it makes sense to you. And every time you see it, every time you feel it, give praise to the Lord for what he has done in your life. And if you're here tonight or you're watching online and you're not a believer and you don't have an experience that you can look back upon, today is the day of salvation. Turn to him, accept Christ, believe that God raised him from the dead, and you shall be saved. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.